you know, as also a business leader who runs a nonprofit organization, I have to say that the practice of learning how to talk to a funder, learning how to write a budget, learning how to uh, show up and be a speaker is informed by how I practice the violin. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Corey Madden. In this episode, we bring you Corey's discussion with Vijay Gupta, a distinguished violinist and founder and artistic director of Street Symphony. Street Symphony is a Los Angeles-based nonprofit that engages communities directly affected by homelessness and incarceration in Los Angeles County through performances, workshops, and teaching artistry. Rob, I think it's fair to say that Vijay didn't have a typical childhood. He began playing violin at the age of four, and as a prodigy, he played in top international venues by the time he reached his teens. He started college at the age of 13, finishing with a pre-med bachelor's degree, and by 19, he was playing in the first violin section of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, having already earned an MFA from the Yale School of Music. I mean, that's really extraordinary. Yeah, I think he was first chair for about 10 years and then realized that he really wanted to do more with his life. He wanted his art actually to be of service. And he set his sights on one specific community, which was Los Angeles's Skid Row, literally down the street from the Philharmonic. In 2011, VJ created Street Symphony. And in 2018, he received the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for his work. It was such a thrill to interview him. And we got that chance at the Keenan Institute's inaugural Artivate Summit held this past August in Winston-Salem. I stole half an hour of VJ's time after his summit keynote. In the background during our interview, you might hear sounds of Artivate participants moving from one workshop to another. I started our conversation by asking VJ how his background and training led him to where he is today. So I started playing the violin in Mid-Hudson Valley, New York, uh, when I was four years old. I started in the tradition called the the Suzuki School. So I was a Suzuki kid. And um, the Suzuki tradition actually starts musicians very, very young, trains them by ear and in group practice, um, and then has them start performing quite young. Um, So I think I started performing when I was five or six years old. Um, When I was seven, I auditioned for the Juilliard Pre-College in Lincoln Center. And I started um, performing and touring as a solo violinist with orchestras when I was eight years old. Uh, I played my debut, my international debut, with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra under Zubin Mehta when I was 11. Um, And... um, a lot of my life is informed by the fact that I grew up in the household of immigrants. My parents immigrated in the 1970s from Bengal. Um, and, um, you know, so much of my life was also about making my parents have purpose and validity in their lives. And a lot of my childhood was um, incredibly exciting, uh, touring across the country, but a lot of it wasn't a childhood. Um, and so... When I was 13, I started going to college. It wasn't entirely my choice. But when I did uh, go to college, growing up in the Indian household I grew up in, I was expected to study science. And so my undergraduate degree is actually in biology pre-med. I worked in a couple of neuroscience laboratories studying Parkinson's disease and spinal cord regeneration. But at the same time, my heart was aching 
for music. I mean, when I was at Juilliard, my life was filled with music in the form of chamber music and orchestra and chorus and composing and conducting. And I just, I lived and breathed this, this music and the connection to my peers and colleagues, which really became a surrogate family for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I attended the Yale School of Music for two years, with a, 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 gained a master's degree in music there. Uh, and then afterwards, really didn't know what I was going to do in my life. Um, of course, my parents wanted me to come and like do an MBA and become a hospital administrator or something to have like a solid, steady, responsible job. Um, but I ended up taking an audition for the LA Philharmonic, uh, and it was just to see what that experience would be like. Um, when I was a violinist, I had studied with the great concertmaster Glenn Dictoreau, and uh, he was the former concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic. And I always just wanted to see what that experience was like. And it was daunting and terrifying. Um, but at the end of it, I was offered a position in the first violins of the LA Philharmonic. Wow. I was 19. And it was my first job and my first audition and my first time being... Um, sort of, you know, challenged to not only be a consummate professional musician, but a whole person, a whole artist. And it was really my colleagues in the orchestra who led me uh, to understand that I was more than just somebody else's definition of an artistic product. That if I really wanted to be the musician that the orchestra and my colleagues and that I personally deserved that I had to dig deep and do the work to understand what my individual voice really was. And so when I think about my leadership approach now, it really is about um, a mixture of throwing somebody in the deep end the way that I was, but also giving them the time to be in that deep well and giving them the time to figure out and nourish themselves with their own most authentic voice. Mm. And that we are going to be the leaders we deserve in the world around us, in this world so filled with discord and pain, if we really understand who we are, if we understand what moves us, if we understand where our boundaries are, but also if we understand that we can have a wellspring of creative and empathic human generosity that does not deplete us at the same time. Um, That, to me, is the definition of leadership. Mm, It's a beautiful definition, and it's such an interesting journey that you took uh, that sounds like you had a lot of rigor that you developed at your inner core, but you also had to go even deeper than that to kind of find your heart and mm-hmm. and put those two things together. It's mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk just a little bit more about um, your creative practice mm. and thinking about how you use it now in leadership opportunities. Mm. What are some of those metaphors about how you think as an artist and then how you translate that. One thing that came up in my talk last night uh, was how the similarity that I find between artists and scientists is in the fact that we really relish making controlled failures. And the truth is that we might set an expectation or a hypothesis about something, and then we'll spend our time in our lab or practice room uh, kind of trying to get to that ideal. 
And that ideal, you know, in a healthy sense is one that we've set for ourselves around being authentically present. You know, I think it's artificial to say that we're going to, uh, you know, hit a, a certain kind of standard or a, or a, you know, a stopwatch mark the way that an athlete would. Mm-hmm. And yet what we do is incredibly athletic in the sense that we, we apply ourselves with tremendous discipline towards a specific set of ideals and practices. And so the way that I think about my own creative practice now is with tremendous diversity and with tremendous depth. And so I see my artistic and human practice being as much about the time I take to journal and read and take care of my body and eat right, um, but also to spend my time practicing scales and Bach and, uh, you know, the, the violin concertos that I love, even if I'm not going to perform them. I think that what artists have to offer the world is the depth of our practice and how deeply uh, evolutionary and revolutionary that practice is. We are constantly committed to humbling ourselves. Um, and, you know, as also a business leader who runs a nonprofit organization, I have to say that the practice of learning how to talk to a funder, learning how to write a budget, learning how to uh, show up and be a speaker is informed by how I practice the violin. You know, I made a point last night to say that how on earth could we not approach a meeting with the funder without being prepared the same way we'd want to be prepared for a chamber music or orchestral rehearsal. If you know how to practice an orchestral excerpt and play it among colleagues, you know how to talk to a funder. You know, and, and the lessons there are translatable. And coming back to the idea of controlled failures, if we have a practice that is self-compassionate, where we forgive ourselves for making mistakes, but we continue to stay present, we will learn. I have made dozens of mistakes this week alone in my organization. And it's like, it's Wednesday, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and at the same time, uh, if I'm open to feedback, if I understand what feels right and what's intuitive and what actually fits energetically with where I want to go, then I'm learning something. Yeah, that's such a powerful, powerful thing to talk about. I think that we talk a lot about practice as something that um, animates the... Um, the idea of being an artist that that work for us is also joy is also learning mm-hmm. and that so many other um, fields don't actually really uh, focus on that quite mm-hmm. the same way they mm-hmm. either make it more commodified um, it's not so intrinsic it's not giving value to the person at the same time that it's giving value to others and I think that this is one of the things that we really are trying to unearth about why it is that artists might have something really to share around the ideas of leadership and thinking about how practice can make a difference. Well, if I could speak to that point very briefly, I think that's about vulnerability. I mean, there is so much in our artistic practice that is commodified. And I think that we're quick to commodify things because we're afraid to actually go as deep as we possibly can. We're afraid to sit in the I don't know, right? And yet when we look at, you know, Publications like Jim Collins, you know, good to great in the social sector. We're looking at artists as being the leaders of 
not only human connection, but also great business practice, mm -hmm. you know, because we're able to sit with questions as opposed to answers. We're mm -hmm. able to value process over product, mm -hmm. but that takes us trusting each other. Right. And that takes us actually being able to say, you know what, even though, um, we're changing the paradigm of you delivering, quote unquote, delivering on this artistic product. I trust who you are as a person and my connection to you, my relationship with you, that we're going to create something together. Right. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. I'd love for you to talk about this moment when you were beginning to think about Street Symphony. You can tell us some stories about sort of that idea. But as you sort of consciously began to think, well, I've, I've been at the Los Angeles Philharmonic as a player, and I've obviously been a leader within that setting because you're leading yourself. Mm. You're having to make sure that you're achieving at a very high level. But you begin to think about um, engaging with others, beginning to think about your vision of what you can do with your skills, mm. what's calling to you. Just tell us a little bit about that yeah, experience. Sure. Um, so, you know, so much of this is... <laughs> murky and nuanced and and has so many levels of shade to it because um there was not a point a clear point where i said okay i'm now going to be a leader or i'm now going to be an artist i feel that those two things are deeply concurrent to me however there was a very real calling to me in the work of Street Symphony and showing up to play in a county jail or a skid row shelter and feeling more connected to my audiences and to my own humanity through music than I often did in the concert hall alone. And to me, I quote one of my great teachers, Liz Lerman, who says that it's about actually hiking this horizontal between being an elite artist and being an artist in community. Uh, it's not one or the other, mm -hmm. you know, and that really the artist's job is to be a bridge between these two spaces and to be the balancing point, even socially, uh, to be able to be a cultural translator and creator in those spaces. So um, I will say that for a long time, my dream was to be a concertmaster of an orchestra. And there were so many skills in that metaphor of being a concertmaster where it wasn't I mean, at least my leadership style as a player is not to demonstrate leadership by saying, you've got to go with me, but rather to kind of turn myself towards the orchestra and the conductor and be a conduit and say, okay, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm going to catch you, you know, wherever you are, I'm going to play exactly with you. But, you know, the invitation to play together is the leadership, right? And so in crafting Street Symphony, there was a microcosm of that same collaborative spirit, you know, maybe not on the orchestral scale, but on the chamber music scale, where now when we have meetings, um, you know, everybody's voice is welcome at the table from our team, including people impacted by homelessness and incarceration who are invited as important kind of cultural curators, but also people who keep us honest to our work and professional musicians and emerging artists and our staff and our board and our advisors. And so it's to say that I am conducting something. I am leading something, you know. Um, but my job isn't only to say I'm the expert in the room, but to say I'm going to listen the loudest, you know. Uh, one of our colleagues in Skid Row says listen louder than you sing, you know. And that listening is an act of intense love, 
you know, to be able to share with a team of people who are so often told what to do. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd love to ask you just in closing what you think we need to communicate to younger artists, to artists in the community who maybe have never received formal training, but who are community-based artists. We have a number of people that we work with who we try to support um, moving forward in their own careers, um, even at midlife, um, to step up and lead, to take that courageous step and and become more engaged. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is how we need the arts now more than ever as a public health intervention, as a mental health intervention, and as a form of internal disarmament, where we can only consider laying boundaries against each other, not boundaries, but laying walls and armor against each other, if we have in some way shut out a really important and vulnerable part of ourselves. I think that we ostracize and criminalize the most fragile and vulnerable among us in our society because we have a lot of internal shame and have created walls within ourselves. And so to the artists who are listening, the first and foremost thing is to say you are enough, that you are not alone, and that we need you. And we need you now more than ever to imagine a world that doesn't exist. We need your imaginative spirit in the realm of business and policy and uh, budget writing and law writing. And yet we also need you to go make breathtaking pieces of incredible beauty. We need beauty in our world right now. We need beauty as justice right now. Um, And that beautiful justice requires you to go make your work. And the truth is that, yes, training will never be enough. You know, I will train myself and humble myself for the rest of my life because I will never be as good as my instrument. Mm. I will never, quote unquote, conquer the violin. I will always be humble. And so if we stay in this place of humble curiosity, we're able to co-create something. Um, that I believe has a tremendous, transcendent, powerful, and transformative impact on the world around us. Um, So in there somewhere is some advice, but is to say that um, as you lead yourself, you will lead the world around you. You know, I I quote, you know, um, perhaps it's trite to quote Gandhi, but I feel like this quote is so right that, you know, you can be the change you want to see in the world around you. And in fact, that is the only way to change. Uh, You know, we must lead ourselves. And then when we hope to change the world around us, it is one person at a time. It is one handshake, one authentic relationship, one faltering, stumbling, rumbling, vulnerable conversation at a time Mm -hmm. in which we're able to craft a better world around us. And if that is a conversation with your family, with your church, with your community, with the people who you play baseball with, that is enough. But go make something beautiful. So powerful. It's so so wonderful. And I I think it's such an important thing for a conservatory 
where where one of the messages that we give students is this idea of pursuing a single point of excellence to the point of becoming, let's just call it famous. But there's a kind of um, lie in that, which is that actually that's not um, what, in fact, you you end up as someone like you who's really achieved so much. It's not about, that is not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is, as you say, this practice, which in a sense, uh, you can get better, but you're always going to be going back into that well and asking a question about the violin that allows you to be innocent again and ask another set of questions and ask another set of questions. So it's like a life, really. And and if if I could just speak to that for a second, it's also to say to artists, protect your solitude. Really protect your solitude. You get to have your deep well. You you do not have to justify your boundaries with busyness. Mm -hmm. And I wish someone had told me that earlier, that it was going to be totally okay if I decided to take some time for myself and simply sleep and and really, you know, write and journal and be by myself, that that wasn't being, uh, you know, a social deviant, you know, that um, I didn't have to deliver all the time. And so much of success and even the success that I've been uh, awarded in my life, which I've so gratefully received is somebody else's definition of my best self, mm-hmm. right? And the truth is that that will always pale in comparison to what I hold as my most authentic definition of my own success. And I'm still trying to figure out what on earth that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also to say, protect your solitude, go to your practice, but also don't take other people too seriously, <laughs> you know, especially the ones who are telling you you're doing a good job. Yes, yes, absolutely. I love that. And, and you know, we, we all are responsible for picking our own teachers. And I think that mm. that's also something for us to think through, which is that it, it isn't necessarily the teachers who we get always who are the most important voices to us. Mm. Figuring out who, who we allow to teach us is, is mm. also really important. So. Mm. Appreciate that. I wonder if you could just um, sum up this interview by giving, you know, offering a piece of advice that you wish you'd received earlier in your career. Mm. I would say that being so accelerated in my life, being the person who, uh, you know, wore the mantle of being the prodigy, of being the genius. Um, that I wish I had been given the opportunity to slow down earlier in my life. And that now slowing down for me, uh, sometimes in my darker moments is linked to stagnation or failure that I'm not delivering or that if I'm not the yes man, then I'm somehow denouncing the rocky and tumultuous path I took in order to get here. And there is a tremendous amount of privilege in being able to say, oh, well, now I have time to slow down because I want a freaking MacArthur grant, you know. But at the same time is to say that um, I am now trying to fill places of deep connection in my life um, where I had kind of glazed over that in the past, you know. And sometimes that's to write really vulnerable emails to a friend when you're hurting, mm-hmm. You know, and say, hey, I'm, I'm hurt right now. It'd be easy to sweep this under the rug, but I care about you and mm-hmm. I want to write this email. You yeah. know, and this sucks for me. Yeah. And so it's to say that there is a beauty in slowing down and being present. 
um, and a deep sense of self-trust and self-worth. The other thing I wish I had been told earlier is to take care of my body, you know, and uh, not only to work out, but to watch what I put in, you know, so to protect myself and to protect my thoughts uh, in terms of what I consume. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've actually taken some time off of social media and some time off of receiving my phone notifications. And the only reason it buzzes is because my fiance is writing to me. That's it, <laughs> you know? Um, so to have my boundaries, even with the black screen, we all carry around ourselves. I will never conquer the violin. That's the thing that rings in my head that he, I want to put that up on a refrigerator magnet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that idea of how, how a creative practice makes you stay humble and that being humble is such a big part of what it means to be a good leader. Yeah. He, uh, you know, one of the things you and I've been talking about as we think about turning this podcast and these interviews into a book is a, a big first component of good leadership is how we lead ourselves first. And that's absolutely something that VJ talked about numerous times in this, that change starts with us. And the better we show up as people, the more impactful we'll be as leaders. Right. And then that attitude really just carries through to how he works with people. You know, he, he is carrying both that idea of staying humble and also staying personal. Start with one conversation, mm. one person. That's the way to change the world. Yeah. He, something he said that stuck with me is he said, make something beautiful, regardless of what the work is that you're doing. That's how I took it, at least, is the always be trying to make something beautiful. Right. Right. And I think that that's, that's the essence of what we mean by artist leader, which is not that you abandon your practice to become a leader, but that your practice itself is a form of leadership. And then by sharing it, by advancing it, by um, translating it, you can actually begin to make steps that, that do transform the world. Totally agree, Corey. And that's it for this episode of Artist as Leader. This podcast is produced by Pierre Carlo Talenti. Our theme music is by The Dimes. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview, please be sure to visit our website at uncsa.edu slash artistasleader. We'd love to hear from you, so please find us on Facebook at the Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your thoughts, including which artist leaders you'd love for us to feature. I'm Corey Madden. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>